Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. We are going to do a deeper dive today on artificial intelligence, AI. It's changing the face, the way we approach business, uh, the way we approach marketing strategy, the way we approach how we nurture and grow our brands. And I was just looking at some data around uh, projections of the kind of impact that AI is going to have across the global economy and I saw one estimate by 2030 that AI will contribute nearly $16 trillion to the economy. That's pretty mind-blowing. And something that's been much talked about is how is um, AI going to change the workforce, uh, change the jobs that are needed, and kind of reshape that? And while there are estimates that it could eliminate up to 85 million jobs, it's also projected to create 97 million new jobs by 2025. So a net increase. So really interesting dynamic. And we're going to talk to someone who is an expert, very passionate, is just hands-on, deeply involved in this changing, evolving impact of AI. And that's Rob May. He's the founder and CEO of Nova and is a leading figure in the field of generative AI and brand safety. Rob also brings incredible entrepreneurial experience. He has been a multiple company founder. He has invested in more than 100 companies as an angel investor. So uh, we want to dive a little bit into that with Rob as well. And really just how do we need to embrace AI and what kind of impact is it going to have for business leaders and marketers going forward? Rob, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm uh, I'm excited to have this discussion. So you've had the opportunity to found multiple companies. So you've had this entrepreneurial spirit. You've been involved hands-on in technology. What originally sparked your passion to go down more of an entrepreneurial path and, and this interest in AI? They actually happened at the same time. So I, I went to University of Kentucky and uh, was in a dual degree program that they have where you got an, an engineering undergraduate degree in any field of engineering and an MBA at the same time. And this was all happening in the late 90s during Web 1.0. So my business school classes were just, you know, off the charts. Professors were like, we don't know what's going on. Um, brick and mortar retail might be dead in yeah. five years. I mean, it was just crazy. Nobody knew what to make of it. So it was a really exciting time. And I was reading a lot about tech. But also, I was an engineering major, and, um, and and so the technical classes at the MBA level were kind of boring for me. So I had to take this like decision science IT class, and we had to do a report on something uh, that interested us related to the class. And I was like, "Well, this whole class is bo boring." So, <laughs> um, so I'm looking through the book, and I get to the very last chapter of the book, and it's like this is probably like 1998 and it's like the future of it. And it talked about AI, virtual reality and a few other things like that. And I remember thinking, well, AI sounds cool. So I did this business school report on AI and um, you know, and then I was heavily influenced by 
the entrepreneurial environment that was going on in the markets at the time. And I thought, ooh, it would be really fun to start a company. I didn't know how hard it was, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But so, so I think that laid the groundwork for both. And then I actually, when I graduated and I started work as an engineer, uh, figured I'd do that for a couple of years, you know, before I started my first company. Mm -hmm. And I went back to get a master's degree in computer science with a focus on AI. And I got about halfway through, but, you know, in the early 2000s, AI was like symbolic logic processing in Lisp. It was not the stuff we do today. It wasn't deep learning. Um, you know, there certainly were no foundation models or anything like that, even on the roadmap. And so I, I, I quit the program a couple classes short because I just felt like it wasn't going to be valuable to my career. But I stayed interested in it as a hobbyist. Uh, you know, I've been a hobby roboticist and, and, and into AI for, for 20 years now. And, um, you know, and so after I sold my first company in 2014 and I looked around in 2015 at what was going to be next, it really felt like we were on the cusp of a legitimate wave of AI. And so I decided to bet the next phase of my career on that as an investor and an entrepreneur. Wow. You know, as you were telling your journey there and it just brought back the memories and, and for those of us that, you know, were, were there at the time. And, you know, you think about the dot-com bubble, you were right in the middle of all that. It was like so much we didn't know, but yet then the ex exciting aspect of being able to pursue something that was totally breakthrough and and new so it had to be just this unique time in in history almost right of uh just um this amazing transformation that was going on yeah it it, it was it was so exciting and and even the you know it sort of reshaped corporate strategy and business strategy a little bit and how people thought about things and um you know those are exciting times and it, it this is the first you know we've been through some waves since then we came a social media wave with the blockchain wave but this AI wave and this moment that we're in now feel most similar to to that time period of yeah. anything that I've lived through. Yeah. Well, fast forwarding to today. And so my background is as a professional marketer and something that, um, of course, is fundamental is uh, the idea of uh, brand, brand positioning, nurturing, growing, establishing differentiation. Brand is powerful. Brand is um, really, really critical. Are there some unique challenges that um, the caretakers of brands are facing today? Yeah. You know, if I tie it back to like my own business school experience, I mean, in 1998, if you were Coca-Cola, you had what was at the time, probably the world's most power powerful brand, still a very strong brand, but, but probably not number one. Um, and there wasn't social media, you know, you, you had, you had more of an ability to use your brand and your money and your distribution power, your PR power to fend off competitors to like, like, you know, if people complained, it didn't matter. It wasn't going to get out there um, and all that kind of stuff. And so, I, you know, I think managing a brand was probably a little bit easier back then yeah. for a lot of reasons. And now brand strategists have to face this market where it's easier to start a competing brand, particularly in the consumer product space than it's ever been, right? The barriers to entry are lower. Um, you have to be on all the time because one small misstep on social media will do millions or tens of millions, or in some rare cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of damage to your, your, your brand, you know, which gets reflected in your revenue and, and your growth and everything else. And then on top of it, you have AI coming, which is automating a lot of processes, helping with decision-making. 
it's make it's giving small brands and small companies the same power as big brands. So if you're so if you're a brand strategist at a you know twenty fifty hundred million dollar smaller brand, it's great for you. You can run almost as good as you know people that run you know billion dollar consumer brands. But if you're if you're running one of those big brands, the the threats to dethrone your brand are stronger than they've ever been, and and the landscape is even even more competitive. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a super interesting time, I think. Yeah, it's really a leveling of the playing field, is what you're talking about there in terms of the the brands and also the reputation management. I mean, to your point, now with um, just this faster access um, to um, late breaking information or opinions. I mean, there's just so much more vulnerability that brands have around reputation management, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, we're, we're we we see that in our customer base. We um, we see that talking to a lot of brand managers. It's it's uh, it's 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 tough out there. Yeah. So you, you talked a little bit again about um, this leveling of the playing field. Are there some other fundamental ways that the emergence of AI is going to change? how brands are developed and managed going forward. Yeah, it's interesting because the, the generative AI stuff in particular is unique because it's built on some technology uh, around natural language understanding, which is really cool because what it allows you to do is take a lot of unstructured natural language data, which is you know most of the data that we as humans generate at work, and start to do stuff with it, make it computational. And this happened even before ChatGPT and the, the LLM wave, you know, the large language models. Uh, you, you know, you could start to make sense of this unstructured data. And so it gives you a lot of a lot of power because you can do things like aggregate all the customer feedback from around the web or from your support desk or, you know, what, what whatever it may be to start to get analytics and insights around these things that you couldn't before. So, you know, roll back the clock even even a few years, it was kind of hard to pick up sometimes on important signals in customer feedback data when you have thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of customers, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Now you can start to find those things and really help, you know, figure that out. And then, and then when you look at the, the generative AI wave, and now you have the idea to generate, you know, branded content at scale that can be personalized, that's even more powerful. And so, you know, we talk to a lot of customers that are, there's a lot of companies that are looking at, you know, I have an email list of 10,000 people. How do I send 10,000 unique emails using generative AI? Uh, you know, how do I make 100,000 personalized landing pages? How mm -hmm. do you know, mm -hmm. one, one for each person? I mean, it's just, it's really going to give you a level of being able to reach out to the customer and talk about what does my brand mean for you specifically, right? Because brands have, you know, there's very few brands that are sort of like one brand attribute, one brand value, right? It's a, it's a mapping of different brand values and different brand promises and, and attributes. And so to be able to highlight the ones that matter the most to a specific customer segment, to a specific, you know, hyper segment is really, really going to be powerful, I think. So it's, it's a very exciting time. You know, that, that's the flip side of, you know, we, we just talked about how hard it is to be a brand manager, but the, the exciting part of it is you have tools and techniques available to you that have never been available before, that if you can master those tools, they're going to be incredibly powerful and they're just going to make such a better buying experience and usage experience for your, your consumers. 
it is pretty amazing how that dynamic is changing because even as a, a purchaser or decision maker, you know, in the old model where I would be the recipient of a go through mass channel, you think of traditional media advertising. And what you're talking about, Rob, is a highly personalized, more intimate experience with a brand, perhaps on the device of my choice, right? At the time that works for me, as opposed to being more of a scheduled, uh, predictable kind of mass distributed model. Yes, exactly. And even even take a really simple example, which is if you're going to do a a photo shoot, right, you might do one with a family or with a man or a woman and and maybe you'll do a couple with a couple different models. But it's it's really expensive and time consuming to do that. But now with generative AI, you can you can generate that photo shoot without any models or if you do use a model you can swipe that person out very easily for a different person in the same clothing, you know, who is, who is more appropriate, you know, from a gender, ethnicity and, mm-hmm. and age perspective to the person that you're targeting. So suddenly, instead of having 40 models come in of all races and genders and ages, you can just have one do it and then you can, you can swap it out, uh, you know, in lots of different advertising configuration. So it's, it's a really powerful, powerful concept. Yeah. I guess the, the old model of the mass casting call, right. Goes away a little bit with this technology. Right. And so we're kind of venturing now into this area of content and how content is developed and how it's shaped. And are are there some things that marketers really need to think about uh, around their content strategy and, and content development in addition to that? Yeah, it's it's uh, I mean, this this is where this is where we got started. We you know, Nova was a content creation company and we created advertisements at scale. You know, you, you could if you sold you know water bottles or coffee mugs or whatever it is, we would create, you know, 10,000 hyper personalized, you know, Google ads for you, Facebook ads or whatever. And marketers kept saying to us like, OK, this is really cool technology, Rob. But like I have to review all this. And not just because it's bad sometimes, like if you've used Stable Diffusion or Dolly 2 or Midjourney, if you've used ChatGPT or, or, or one of their competitors, like sometimes the stuff that doesn't, that comes out is not great. You know, you can resolve that by just generating lots of stuff. But the harder problem is, let, let's say it, it does look good, right? There's no humans with six fingers or three noses in your pictures. The picture actually looks good. You know, there's no weird words or hallucinations in your your chat gpt ad that, that it writes for you but like is it still on brand and and so marketers would say to us like yeah I, I give the tesla example tesla's brand guidelines say you can't use the word luxury it's a high performance sport brand mm-hmm. and serious brand marketers care about that kind of nuance and so the question is how do you get really nuanced on brand content out of these things when just getting high quality content is is hard enough and the machines don't know anything about your brand so so we sat back and we're like well could you teach a machine to understand brands and branding and it turns out it's a very hard problem technically but um we took inspiration from a field of study called style transfer what style transfer did was people would train up models on famous artists dali Escher, mm-hmm. Picasso, and then they would run your picture through it. And now I could have, you know, the Picasso-ified version of Dan. And, oh, wow. uh, 
And so we started thinking, well, if you can teach machines to pick up on artistic styles, could they figure out brand styles? So, so we accumulated data sets of like about 70 million branded assets, right? <clears throat> and the way deep learning works is you give these to the machine and you say, here's all the assets that represent Nike. Here's all the ones that represent Reebok. Here's all the ones that represent Converse, et cetera, et cetera. Figure out where they're similar and where they're different and what dimensions, you know, how, like how are these images different from each other? And, um, and the machine runs millions of cycles through this and tries stuff and everything else and, and like figures it out. It's really, really interesting. And then, um, and so, so then we started taking it to people and saying like, okay, now we can generate ads and we'll make sure they're on brand. And uh, we started ingesting people's style guides and mm -hmm. building a series of models for that. And what it kept coming back to was people kept saying like, well, we're going to use a bunch of different generative tools. Like we'll, maybe we'll use yours, but you know, we're using all these other ones and everything else. Like, can you make this brand guard piece valid for those as well? So that all the content that we create with generative marketing, you know, could be on brand and kind of checked by the machines, the machines can, you know, the, the, the tool can flag the stuff that humans should review. It can auto approve stuff that's on brand. And so we eventually just dropped all the generative advertising stuff. And we just built what we call a, um, a brand governance platform, which uses 36 different AI models that we've developed that are built off historical uh, brand assets that you give us and, um, you know, style guide, brand guidelines information and, uh, you know, validates everything to make sure that it's on brand. And it doesn't have to be stuff created by machines. It could be stuff created by humans as well. We, we sometimes talk to people who are using a lot of third parties and contractors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, um, and so I, you know, I, I think this, you, you have this combination around content of generative AI, uh, lots of fragmentation of channels, the drive for personalization that's making content harder and harder and harder to do. And so, uh, you know, I think you're going to see a new set of tools arise. And I, you know, I, I hope our tool, our brand guard is a, is a part of that, that, you know, are going to make this possible to do at massive scale. Yeah, that's fascinating because one of the biggest challenges, if you're responsible for really being the ambassador of a brand inside of a company and uh, have oversight, you mentioned brand governance. I mean, it's such a big challenge when you've got multiple content creators, some in-house, some uh, maybe external, just the, the chasing down and, and the policing, if you will, right, of all of those executions. And, and th this seems to, to really make that so much more efficient and more consistent. So it's right. got some big implications. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So something you said uh, recently, really interesting. I want to dive into this a little bit. You've talked about the opportunity that AI brings for humans to be quote, supercharged. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. Here's the concept, conceptual model I would use to think about it. Imagine a construction worker who uses a robotic exoskeleton that fits over your body. And now instead of lifting a hundred pounds, you can lift 400 pounds because you have the extra support and your muscles aren't as tired. But you know, you still have the fine grained control of a human because, you know, picking up things with your hand, like hands are pretty impressive, you know, evolutionary uh, yeah. you know, outcomes. And so it's like, you know, the, the, it's hard to build a robot to do a lot of that stuff. And so you get the best of both worlds. And you know, people often ask me, do I think machines will take jobs? Like they'll take some jobs and like maybe someday in the distant future, they take all the jobs. I, I don't know. Um, but I don't see any of that in the next 10 or 20 years. I see 
I see machines supercharging humans with the cognitive version of that exoskeleton that I that I just mm-hmm. mentioned, right? You, mm-hmm. you can imagine like if the machines can give you more data, they can make predictions that you can invalidate or invalidate. They can um, make recommendations, automate certain tasks. Like the job of marketers over the next decade is going to be about making strategic plans, doing hardcore creative, training the machines and giving them feedback on what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. But the machines are going to do a lot of the execution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're really moving out of just pure mundane, repetitive tasks that doesn't require the human hand. It's really getting more to the cerebral, uh, the strategic contributions, right? There's really this shift. Yeah. And, and I think the way to think about it is you're going to be able to build marketing teams at the same level of scale with fewer people. So, you know, if you if you manage a $10 million marketing budget and you have so many people that are required to run and manage that budget, you're going to have half as many now. So it's going to be more efficient for you and they're going to be more effective. And if you're a marketer and you want to think about what your job means going forward, you have to think about, well, if AI is going to make the execution of the tasks easy, it's going to make the mild variation and experimentation around the core assets easy, and it's going to make content creation easier. So you're going to get more of a lot of those things. What are the skills I have to develop to for the next phase of my career? And I think it's the you know it's the ability to to do a few things. Number one, understand the new tool stack, right? Tools like BrandGuard, tools like ChatGPT you know, uh, how do you use those things and where do they fit in your stack and how do they work together? Um, and then, you know, number two, how to think experimentally and how to think on a, on a personalized level where what kinds of experiments can you run and how can you do those effectively? And, you know, then how do you, how do you roll things out at scale? Because you can just generate more test data than ever before. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's really exciting. And then, and then the third thing, and th- this has always been a, a trait in, you know, the workforce, but how do you get better at communicating, you know, advocating for marketing across the rest of the company and, uh, you know, and showing value to the CEO, the CFO, you know, people that may not, uh, I, I, there's so many people in the world, right. Who look at marketing as just like an, an expense, right. You know, particularly stuff like yes. brand marketing. And um, yeah, that's, that's not a good way to look at it. I mean, if anything, I would say that, in this world where everything becomes a little easier and more automated, your execution becomes less of a differentiator or a competitive advantage. And your, your brand promises, your brand values, what that brand stands for in the mind of consumers becomes more important and more of a differentiator than ever before. And so companies have to continue to invest there because the marketplace is getting noisier and all, you know, all these tools that make it easier for you to develop more content faster, they make it easier for everybody else as well. So making sure that your brand is, is having consistent messaging, that it stands out, that you're reaching the right users is going to be super, super important. Yeah. One thing that you said there, and when you think about the marketers skill sets and we are going to be in this constantly evolving uh, and and data-rich environment. So continuous learning. So one, having a mindset around, I'm in a continuous learning mode. I mean, that's a given. And then the interpretive skills are going to be really important, right? Not just the doing, and it's not going to be activity-based. It's going to be your ability to crisply interpret 
uh, and apply that learning right into improved performance. So really interesting dynamic for marketers for sure. And I, I want to shift gears a little bit, Rob, because you've had such extensive experience both founding and investing in companies. So you've got this experience of just giving birth and just being in startup mode and just kind of just going through that experience so many times. As you reflect back on those experiences, you know, if you were just looking for opportunities for what you might have done differently, are there some mistakes or key learning that you've picked up along the way when you reflect back? Yeah, lots of things. I, um, I got a very good piece of advice at my first company from one of my early angel investors who said, yeah, so you remember I'm an engineer by training. And he said, the problem that engineers have when they start companies is they want to build a complete product. They want to really make it great. And there are times to do that. You know, if you're an established company and you have users and, um, you know, your market's well understood, you, you, you can't throw a, you know, half a product out the door. You do need to be very crisp and polished when you launch. But when you're a startup, one of your advantages is you can you can move fast. And if you lose your, you know, you have to sign up tens of thousands of customers to build a successful business. If your first 20 that you test the product on aren't happy with it and go away, I mean, you have a chance to recover, right? And so he always said, you can, um, you have to launch early. You should be uncomfortable with the state of the product, but it's important that you get feedback People are going to sign up. They're going to pay you for the product. Then they're going to cancel their subscriptions and tell you why, what was wrong with your product. And that is the single best piece of feedback that you can get is like, I'm no longer paying for your product because of this reason. And it's, I think it's often overlooked because, you know, we had this whole customer development movement where people were like, well, let's do a hundred customer interviews before we write a line of code. And that that's important. You should talk to customers and everything else, but you have to remember that, what people tell you when you're saying, maybe I'll build this product, what do you think, is different than what they'll tell you when you're like, I have this product, what do you think, do you want to buy it? Which is also different from what they'll tell you when like, when they say, hey, I did buy your product because I was expecting this and my experience was bad, right? So it's like, it gets a little more real and the feedback gets more useful at every stage. So, um, so that was one thing. Uh, that I learned. Second thing is, um, and it's just a general business lesson. I hung on to too many bad apples early in my career because I thought, you know, you can't, um, I want to fire people. It looks bad for the company. It looks bad for you. It's a terrible experience for everybody involved. Uh, yeah, I've probably fired a hundred people in my career now and I still hate it. Um, but, uh, but every time I learned that like you have to keep a, you, you know, you, you have to keep a standard depending on what's appropriate for your company and the market that you're in and the kind of people that you hire. And when you let, you know, when you let, you know, bad people, when you let assholes, when you let weak performers or whoever like hang around, it has a negative impact on the company culture. And even when you think, we had a guy at, at one of my companies who was like really painful to work with. And I kept thinking like, but he's so brilliant, like we need him. And the team won't know what to do if he's fired. And finally, I had it and I had to fire him. And the team rallied. They were all so happy to get rid of him yeah. <laughs> that, uh, you know, we, we move forward. Um, so I, I think that was a big lesson as well. 
Um, and like, yeah, I mean, we could do a two hour podcast about. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I think what you're talking about, so many people can relate to that if you're in a leadership position, because those decisions can be hard, but the decisiveness, right, is, is so critical. And my experience, Rob, you know, also having been in that position of having to, um, to fire people, um, where there just wasn't a fit is actually probably more times than not when you actually get in and, and look at the situation or if you have a real conversation, that person, I found that they're, they are also aware that maybe things aren't going well, you know, and it's not a great fit. And sometimes it's actually a relief because you're actually, you're doing what's right for the company and for the other team members. And also you're probably doing what's right for them so that they can go and find a place that they can be happier and they can be a better fit. So, but, but it can be really hard to have that, that crisp decisiveness, right. To just take action versus just, okay, well, well, things will get better. We'll let it go along, but you're right. There is a cost to not making that decision. Yeah, absolutely. I've even fired some people that I gave good references to later because I said, look, they weren't a fit here, but it sounds like the role you're hiring them for, they would do awesome, right? Based on what I know about them. So yeah, it can, it can still work out for everybody to your point. Yeah. And, and on the topic of leadership, just continuing down that path from your perspective, Rob, what separates truly exceptional leadership from just good enough? Oh man, I could, this is another one we could do a podcast on. I am so frustrated with the world today and where it is because it seems like across business and politics and, and, and even nonprofits and just everywhere, it's like leadership seems to have become about I'm leader. I get to do what I want to do. It's all about me. I mean, you know, we, we, we see this everywhere and, and don't get me wrong. Like leadership is hard. And I, I, I agree that leaders should sometimes get special privileges that other people don't to help compensate for that, right? Like, you know, if you're the CEO, you, you probably get an assistant before anybody else because you have a busier schedule. And, and that's fine. I don't look at that as the wrong thing. But good leaders, you know, you know, when I was in business school, we studied all the different theories of leadership. And, um, you know, one that really resonated me with me was a guy named Robert Greenleaf, who in the I think 1970s wrote a book called Servant Leadership and had a lot of religious connotations and all that. Uh, but I think it's still outside of religious context is very valuable, which is, um, you know, you as the leader have to balance the like, set the vision, charge the hill, you know, be there. It, you got to be willing to do anything that you would ask somebody else to do. I mean, I still, you know, when we're, we're early here at Brandguard and I, I, I wrote an ebook you know, for us last week, um, was not what I want to be spending my time on, but it, it had to be done. And you need to balance that with remembering that your number one task, particularly as your team grows, is kind of like serving them by like keeping all the crap out of their way, you know, mm-hmm. modulating the ups and downs of the company from investors and the markets, if you're public and, you know, whatever it may be, so that they can focus on the jobs they need to be done. And, and also from each other sometimes, right? You know, co- you know, focusing on things like, minimizing the corporate politics and making sure people work well together. You know, I, I, I think the, the exceptional leaders that I've worked with have done a good job of communicating, driving to, to, to clarity in the organization, you know, being willing to, to ask those extra questions of like, okay, but why, but why, you know, how do we agree? Um, and then, you know, have been, have been high integrity, have been, 
uh, you know, willing to go to bat for the team. I mean, you, you, you know, people now you want to be a leader, but they don't want to put their job on the line for anything. They don't want to make any bold moves or bold predictions. Um, you know, they don't want to, you know, they want to pawn things off on other people. What was that person's fault? It was this person's fault. You know, it's not, I mean, gosh, particularly the pol political leaders today, it's never anybody's fault. Right. Um, and it's, it's embarrassing. And sometimes you just want to tell people like, you know, like the truth is, if you're the leader, like if you're the CEO of a of a privately held company, and you have the ear of the board and everything else, you know what? You should actually take responsibility for things just to move on, even if they weren't your things. So like if something bad happened, instead of like, you know, I was part of a company where we used to <laughs> we used to joke that the number one corporate value was, um, you know, root out and punish the guilty <laughs> because that's how the corporation worked. And sometimes as a leader, you should be like. You know, people are arguing over whose fault it was. And you're like, you know what? It's it's my fault. I made a mistake. I should whatever, like, let's move on, right? Because you have the political capital as the leader to take it. That's how you should use it and you should absorb it. But in this like narcissistic leadership era, people can't do that because as the leader, your point of view is like, well, I'm never wrong, right? And that's just right. like, this is not a good way to lead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of what you say resonates. You know, when I wrote my book, The Impact Makers, that underlying connective theme across the 82 leaders that, that I interviewed that I featured in the book was this notion of uh, more of a servant leader mindset. So, and the idea of moving away from command control models to more of an empowering model, um, but still keeping that accountability that you talk about back as a leader. And it's easier said than done, but the research out there is pretty compelling that uh, that kind of a mindset, a servant leader mindset can lead to better company performance and better employee satisfaction over time. So powerful stuff. Uh, and uh, it seems to be uh, embraced more uh, and more. So we're kind of moving in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go, don't we? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I even saw a study a couple of years ago that like the, uh, if you survey people in every college major, about ethics and morality, like the ones that score the worst are NBA, NBA candidates. And you're like, come on, this is, this uh, has got to change, yeah, you yeah. know? And, and I get that some of these ethical decisions, like let's be honest, sometimes they're really hard and complicated, right? And you're, you're pitting two things against each other and it's complex, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't have a framework for how to think about this stuff. And, you know, and remember that like, yeah, I get, you know, shareholder value and profits and all that's important, but at the end of the day, you have to be a good person, a good company for society. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean we have to be kumbaya or socialist or whatever. Like we can still be capitalists, but like, there's still a line, right. Of like what's right and what's wrong just at its core. And we're seeing the next generation of workers that are being recruited into companies. We know that their expectations have really changed and the bar has been raised in terms of what they expect. So the competition yeah. for talent, right, Rob? I mean, you, if you don't bring it, uh, in terms of what they're expecting, in terms of social responsibility, in terms of uh, probably more of a servant leader type mindset versus command control, it's going to be harder to even recruit and retain the top talent. Yeah, you can't be, if you're a good leader, I think you, you, too many people will try to hire, you know, B players, C players, people that aren't a threat to them, people that aren't going to challenge them. And the truth is like, like, you know, some of the statistics I'm most proud of about my career, uh, nine people who used to work for me have gone on to start companies. Um, two of the companies that are bigger than anything I've ever built, right? Which I'm very proud of them for that. And it's amazing. Um, 
you know, seven, seven of them are uh, people are CEOs. There's some overlap there, but there's, you know, two people that are CEOs that never started a company, but, you know, grew at the companies that I ran. And, and, and I, I think these are the kinds of people that you want to attract and acquire and work with. Um, and I think if you're a good leader, you can't be, you know, petty and worried about yourself over everybody else. That's just, that's not what leadership is about. Yeah. The thing I've talked to colleagues about that we wanted to avoid was ever as a leader conveying the sense of we've always got to be the smartest person in the room because that's a deflating, not a uh, uplifting kind of experience for teams. So Rob, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? My executive coach at my first startup, so the first time I was a CEO and I almost lost my job because I was terrible at it. And so one of my uh, my independent board directors suggested I, I try an executive coach. And I, I kind of went to him and he's like, what's the problem? And I'm like, I wish these investors would just stay off my back and let me let me do my thing. And and, and he told me, we, we talked a lot about like power and control and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, look, if you communicate well and your board knows what's going on and there aren't surprises and you handle them well and you're open and honest and you're getting them what they need, you're always in control. And, you know, and, and I say this a lot to th this communication piece about what's going on is really important, particularly in the world I, I work in startups, right? Like, you know, I've, I've done four startups. I've, I've run four companies. I, um, I've invested in, you know, over a hundred. And so I spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs and they're always worried about two things. They're always worried about, well, number one, what if my ownership gets too low? I mean, I, I need to own 50% of the company so that I can be in control. And it's like, well, number one, if, if you're at odds with your board to the point where you have to put things to shareholder votes <coughs> that you win because you own more than half the company, like you're in a bad spot already. Um, and then I always, you know, and, and the second thing is they're really afraid to tell their investors bad news. But like, you know, I, I mean, I've seen everything. I've seen companies blow up for reasons you can't even imagine, like totally random things, founders fighting, if things happen that were outside of their control, lots of self-inflicted wounds. The sooner I know about it, the sooner I can help and tell you some ideas. And, um, and so I always tell founders, you know, uh, if you're a good communicator and you let us know what's going on, you're kind of always in control of your company. And, and I think that's important. So, yeah, so it's, it's really about communicating with your stakeholders, I think is, you know, it, it, and how that'll improve your relationships with them and, and kind of help you lead and be in control and, and everything else is, is some of the best advice I've ever been given. Yeah. It's that transparency is really what you're talking about there. And when you now look ahead to the future, we've got so much exciting uh, and uh, also can be daunting, uh, just the rate of change and, and the intensified competition, all of those dynamics going on. But when you look ahead to the future, what makes you optimistic? From an AI perspective, I think the thing that makes me most optimistic is the impact for really personalized educational paths. Because you know, we've, we've sort of standardized education for, for a lot of reasons um, to try to measure outcomes better, to try to make sure that, you know, people aren't getting taught inappropriate things or things that are no longer true or, or, or whatever. But people are all so different and they learn in different ways, not just, not just because some people like 
rote memorization and other people like creativity and challenging thinking and other people are more spatial learners or thinkers or whatever, but also because the order that you need to understand things matters, right? You know, some, some people could probably be in the seventh or eighth grade and could jump to calculus and just get it. And other people would need to have, you know, a different background before they would understand it. It depends on how you think and what you know previously. And so I, I think there's probably a lot of latent potential around the world. Uh, there's probably a lot of people who either think they're not as smart as they really are. They just haven't had a great teacher who connected with them, or they think they can't understand a concept, particularly because it's too hard. Um, and, you know, and the truth is they just haven't had the right background or the right teacher or the right prerequisites. And the ability to rectify all that with AI, which can sort of understand and interact and recommend the next stuff, I think is going to just unlock a lot of potential intelligence for the world, you know, and, and, and when, when people like what they do and they understand, you know, you always hear this advice, like find your passion and everything else. You, you know what people are passionate about? People like things that they're good at. And a lot of people like say they hate math, but I, I bet if I could teach you math and you got pretty good at it, you would enjoy working through certain types of problems. If I showed you like applied problems that you could solve with this math, like, you know, and so, so I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I think it's really going to unlock a lot of great things for the world. Yes. A lot of potential, a very exciting. So in closing our conversation, Rob, do you have any other final advice for leaders that are looking to build, sustain, protect, and grow their brands? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the main thing I would advise is I think you've got to get on board with the generative AI wave. I don't think it's going away. I don't think it's going to be a fad. It's changing fast enough that you can't wait and see. You need to be experimenting. And I, you know, I hope as part of that, you, you, you'll take a look at BrandGuard, uh, you know, at our company and, and how we can help, you know, sort of enforce your brand standards on, on things as you do this. We'd love to be part of your stack. Um, but you know whether you use us or not, this is a space that you should be uh, you should be paying attention to, and I, I think it's really important. A lot of great tools out there and, and wisdom uh, that we can benefit from. Rob, thanks again for joining, giving us uh, deeper insight into all the potential that AI brings, and also just your experiences as an entrepreneur and an investor in companies. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And a reminder to please continue to give the gift of feedback to help make this podcast better. Go out, rate and review. It really does make a difference. You can do that on all the major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify. So please continue to do that. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.